0: Hello and welcome back to episode 51 of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Omid Izami. In this episode, I sat down with my good friend and New York based endodontist, Dr. Stephanie Tran, at Her Holiness the Pulp on Instagram. Back in 2018, on episode 22 of the podcast, we recorded our episode called Endo 101. And this episode blew up and quickly became one of the most downloaded episodes of the show and remains in the top five to this day. And that is why I'm super excited to have Stephanie back on the podcast today talking some endo. In this interview, we talk about pre-treatment radiographic diagnosis and case assessment to help you guys stay out of trouble in those tricky cases and help identify those sticking points before you start. We also review some clinical tips and tricks and spend some time talking about the endo restorative workflow and why it is important to have that restorative plan in mind prior to referring to your endodontist or starting root canal treatment. This episode is brought to you by my good friends at Henry Shine. With over 60,000 products available from consumables, cat CAM technology, lab and large equipment, and of course, all the courses and events that they run, you can always rely on them to be your trusted business partner every step of the way. As always, I just want to thank everyone for continuing to support the podcast. Reaching 50 episodes was a huge milestone and I am very excited to bring you guys the next 50 episodes. If you have the time, I would... It would mean a lot to me if you can head over to iTunes, give the show a five-star rating, and leave a review. And if you have friends, colleagues, and classmates who you think may enjoy the podcast, please be sure to share it with them to help us grow the community and provide more value to a lot of the dental students and young dentists out there. Without further delay, I hope you enjoy this interview with endodontist Dr. Stephanie Tran. Hello and welcome to the Newbie Dentist Podcast, the safe place for newbie dentists to connect, collaborate, learn, and grow. The Newbie Dentist Podcast aims to provide high quality and high value content for all the newbie dentists out there. With your host,
1: Dr. Azami.
0: Okay, so I'm here with uh, Dr. Stephanie Tran at Her Holiness the Pulp. Uh, We're doing episode two, which is kind of cool. We did one about a year and a bit ago. And I know a lot has changed for both of us in our practicing life and our our regular life as well. So it's exciting to catch up again and talk some endo with you. So thanks again for coming on.
1: Thanks again for having me. I'm really excited to be on again. It's been a while since you and i have talked and so it's really cool to kind of see the changes for both of us so i'm excited to talk to you again
0: for sure so we were talking a little bit before the interview and we're kind of seeing which topics we think will be high yield and people get a lot of value from so let's um start off because we've got a lot to kind of get through today so one thing i want to kind of start off with was i think a practical tip for general dentists which would be the, the radiograph side of things so Patient walks in, you take a PA, you've diagnosed it with, you know, pulp necrosis, you know, symptomatic apical parentitis, whatever it may be, and you're considering starting the case. So what radiographic signs or things that you've kind of picked up over the past couple of years of working now as a specialist, um, what should we watch out for to avoid trouble and stay stay out of trouble, essentially? Because I find myself, just from personal experience, sometimes I'll look at, it looks pretty straightforward. So I'll start the case and it's a little bit trickier. Either I can't find all the canals or I can't negotiate the canals. And I'm wondering if there's anything that I can or we can all watch out for on the radiograph that might give us some hints as to which is going to be a tricky case or not.
1: Sure. Um. There's a lot. So the first, first and foremost, whenever it's multiple canals, it's always best to take two PAs, one straight on and one off angle, either from the mesial or the distal. Okay. The reason is because there's so much information. You know, even just from two PAs. Of course, it'd be nice to have a C- CBCT, but you have. But on that note, just as a specifics, um, the CBCT has to be a small field of view with a very high resolution, or else if you're using like a normal CBCT, the way it is for like implants or perio Surgery, the resolution is too low to really, really see like all the canals or really see really fine details. So, uh, taking a giant full arch CT every on every endo patient, I would not recommend. Yeah. Back to the thing: two PAs, um, and then looking for the nuances in between. So, looking for curvatures. um, Secondly. If you're looking at the canals and the canals have the radio opacities inside of the um, pulp chamber, then you can expect pulp stones or like some sort of dystrophic calcification. Also to keep in mind, good, a de- like an average measurement of how far the pulp chamber is from the occlusal table. Um, the rule of thumb is like the rule of seven. So seven millimeters is about where you should start looking for canals. If you're yeah. getting past eight or nine millimeters, and access that's like very dangerous and yeah. then that's a concern and maybe stop and reassess but having that distance even on the radiograph ahead of time is very helpful to help you gauge where to access and how deep to access and then that way you can be aware of like possible perforations. Another thing is looking at the canal itself, how thin it is, how easy it is to see. So that will tell you how calcified it is. Yeah. And if you can see the canal and all of a sudden mid-root it stops, like you it all of a sudden disappears, yeah. then most likely the canal has split. Otherwise, I mean, sometimes it's like calcified, but it's usually either a split or like a crazy curve somewhere. That's why it would suddenly disappear. Another thing is looking for the periapical radiolucency. So the shape of the periapical radiolucency will tell you a lot. So if it's slightly off-centered of the root, that tells you that there is likely either a second canal or a split like a split in the canal system or a curved canal it could be one canal but it's curved all those things are possibilities so those are some things to keep in mind before you start to get in and if it is like super curved or has an extra curvature then that's the kind of case where you definitely want to pre-curve the hand file a small hand file like a 10 c or 15 to try to get into that curved apex the other thing is looking for nuances in the canals it's also like a a molar a second molar if you take a couple angles to see if the canals merge or if the roots fuse so then that will tell that helps you kind of suspect ahead of time if there might be a c-shaped canal system or merging of the canal systems and then that way you can be prepared like if the canals do join how to prepare the two canals like that
0: so for the rule of seven where do you measure that from is it just from like the cusp
1: tip from the occlusal table so or the cusp tip yeah it would be the cusp tip to the pulp horn or the occlusal table to like the pulp chamber floor yeah
0: Okay. That's pretty cool. So take two views to, you can see a little bit more perspective on it. What about like mid procedure? What can you gain like from taking some radiographs during the procedure with like, hand, like a hand file in there or a GP cone in there to kind of help guide you if you're kind of a little bit lost?
1: Sure. If you're kind of not sure if you're even in the canal system or if you're in the pulp chamber at all, then you can take a radiograph and put a file into what you think is a canal. Yeah. Just to make sure a canal and not a perf or something like that. Yeah. Another thing is midway, let's say you're instrumenting, but you're starting to hit a hard stop. Yeah. And in that case, you want to go back with hand files, see if you can pick around, see if you can get like a stickiness where it tells you it might be a canal system, place EDTA in there, put the um, hand file in and then take a radiograph and see if you're starting to be excessively straight and going in the wrong direction. Or if maybe you're hitting a curve and you're hitting a ledge, those will all tell you that type of thing
0: okay so that um i know it's a little bit off topic but that heart stop feeling what is that normally what's the, like the main causes because i i feel like when when i feel that i like, I know something's not going right and it's always yes. not like i'm not sure if it, have i have alleged it or is it just like am i hitting like between a like a perforation between like two like split canals or um mm-hmm. how do you normally manage it once you hit that like get that heart sure. stop feeling
1: so the rule i mean a good thing to keep in mind when you're instrumenting it should feel like it's when you are doing like the pecking motion or the slight, like you're guiding the file forward, whatever, you know, it should always allow you to progress forward. And even if you back up, just back up a little bit and it should continue to progress forward. So it's like, I kind of say it's when you do this bump, bump, bump kind of feeling it's two Mm -hmm. steps forward, one step back, two steps forward. So each bump will be, you're not pulling your file out all the way. You're just backing it out a little bit. So it's no longer bound Mm -hmm. and then guiding it forward a little, guiding it forward a little bit more. Yeah. When it's getting a hard stop, that means you're taking a file down and it's not going anywhere. It's, truly hard then i always go back with a hand file usually a 10 then i will pre-curve it and see if i can get to that my sticky point again where the canal system is so you don't ever 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 want to force the rotary file down yeah so you take a hand file and it should feel sticky and you pre-curve it i pre-curve it's in my highlights in my instagram okay pre-curve just the apex like a three millimeters either with your nail or with a cotton flyer and you guide it in. you twiddle in so i talk about twiddle and filing so you're just almost like a watch winding like back and forth back yeah. and forth down gently guiding it down if you get a stick when you progress your hand file forward it should want to go forward a little bit and then you can draw it out and like file So all that is a hand-filing technique to help you get back into a canal system. That pre-curving means that maybe it's curved, so then maybe you're going to get back into it. Those hard stops can mean a variety of things. Number one, that you're ledged. Number two, that you've broken the file in there separate a file in there and you're just hitting the file you want to back look at your file it can also mean sometimes it can mean an apical delta but apical deltas are not usually that far up mid-root yeah uh, and you are often able to get into one of the canals of the apical delta it's more commonly that it's a you're starting to go in the wrong direction so you can be transporting the canal system you're ledging the canal system or you've blocked the canal system either with a separate instrument or with too much debris so sometimes you can actually block yourself out and then the tip will start going in a different direction because it's blocked out with so much debris which is why recapitulation and re getting patency again with a hand file is so important
0: yeah for sure yeah i'm pretty so if you've ledged it so once you you've kind of like watch wind your way if you get past it and you do your filing is that pretty Mm -hmm. comfortable then when you go back to the rotary that will actually bypass it or it's not always that easy
1: it can be but it It means that you have to make sure you get in there first with the 10, Mm -hmm. then with a 15, and the 15 should be able to go in painting and you have to pre-curve it. You can also try with a 20 as well, just to make sure you have a really clean, smooth path. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of times you probably want to use a slightly smaller file that is controlled memory so you can pre-curve it into your original canal system okay so it's not a straight another, <laughs> yeah it's not it, it can be but it depends on how ledged it is and how how involved it is and if you have a controlled memory file to get back into it another technique is like the balance force using like specifically roan files but it's a very that's a very advanced thing it's very hard to do with yeah. a large hand. wouldn't recommend that one pre-curved controlled memory rotary files after getting a a really, really good glide path with hand files is gonna be the most straightforward.
0: Okay. So get it at least up to a fifteen, ideally like a twenty to bypass and <laughs> so then-
1: (laughs) get your 20 in there to patency then Mm -hmm. you should have a wide enough path and then start with a smaller pre-curved controlled memory file
0: okay so you've you've taken a pa you start the case when's a good time to like call it quits like and stay safe yeah like when should you know like okay this, this is maybe not going right or there's something abnormal going on that i should probably not like keep going
1: Sure. If your access is getting excessively wide or excessively deep, so starting from the top of the procedure, right? So starting from their access, if your access is excessively wide, excessively deep, and you still haven't found all the canals, like you're expecting how many canals, Mm -hmm. that's one place to stop. Another is if your files are not advancing as easily as you thought they would be. So like if it's a really, really calcified case, that might be a time to call it quits. Another thing is if you're trying to go and your rotaries are just not advancing much at all, and they're starting to go maybe in a questionable direction, then that's another good point to stop. So all the earlier points are a lot easier because once it's really, really late in the procedure, it's a lot harder to fix. Yeah. Yes. Oh, sorry, one thing I just remembered. So with the looking at the radiograph for the distal canal of a lower molar, one of the things to look for is when you're taking the multiple angles, you want to look for quote unquote two PDLs of the walls of the distal root. And the the reason is because if it looks like there's two that are next to each other, then there's a good chance it's either a figure eight shaped canal or a or two canals, and then you want to try to be looking for a second canal. So if it's figure eight, then you're not really trying to look for another canal but if it's like you're only finding this one perfect little canal and it's not centered with the two mesial canals yeah you want to try to be looking for that fourth distal canal so that's one way to look for you look for two pdls on the walls of the distal
0: yeah radiographically and so when i'm just curious like when you say this like you're doing a lower lower six and you open it up when do you know it's gonna gonna be a pretty slam dunk case versus like oh like is it when you're like your eight file just goes into length the first try or like, how do you know like, okay, it's going to be pretty straightforward and you can kind of relax. Oh
1: yeah. So you can easily see all your canals like boom right away. You see all three or four. Mm -hmm. And yes, when I put, if I put my 10 in actually a 10, Mm -hmm. if a 10 is loose, like I can go into the apex and you can do just a quick check. You know, you check with the apex located rings red Mm -hmm. right away at about the estimated working length you thought you were going to be, like you look at a, you measure the radiograph ahead of time. You think it's about 20. You're getting red right at 20. Mm-hmm. You're checking your EAL, your apex locator. Yeah. Then, yeah, if it's a loose 10, you're good. Okay. So if sure you have me. a loose 10, you know you can get a 15. And if you have a 15 to patency, that's a 20. You get you have the 20 to patency. Mm-hmm. And so then you know you can get rotary files in there easily. So mm-hmm. loose 10, easily 15 easy 20.
0: So do you normally go up to 20 before you start rotary or?
1: I only check with a 10 yeah. and, and then make sure I can get my 15 to length a lot of manufacturers will tell you oh make sure you can get a 20 size 20 hand file or a lot of people learn in school make sure you have a 20 hand file before you start to use your rotaries but the problem with the size 20 hand file is that's the size 20 is the point where the files start to get a little too stiff the hand files are yeah. being a little too stiff so if you're trying to to actually instrument with the 20 there's such a high chance you can transport the canal so it's not about using a 20 it's knowing you have a 20. You know, you have a 20 when you have a 15 that's a little long. Yeah. Because a 15 long, then a millimeter up from 15 to 17, I'm not, you know, that kind okay. of thing. Yeah. So if you have a long 15, you don't even have to put the 20 in. Mm-hmm. You already know you're at a size 20.
0: You're doing a good shit. Uh, one, one more quick one. This is fun because I just, like, just asked my little
1: no, <laughs> troubleshooting. No, that's what I'm here for. So,
0: for example, like some premolars I find, or the distal of some lower molars, I'm not sure if it's like either a wide orifice or if it's like two close canals. What's like an easy mm-hmm. way of just like checking that to make sure, like, so you know?
1: Oh, if it's. I'm sorry, are you asking like if it's one or two canals or yeah. if you're trying to look for a second canal? No,
0: like you found it and it looks like, like you said, like the figure eight or if it's just like a wider orifice. Sometimes I'm not sure, if, like I'm not sure if I'm like going in and it's kind of like a large like taper naturally. So I'm. Just,
1: okay, yeah. Or it's
0: like two separate ones actually, like it's tough to kind of differentiate sometimes.
1: Sure. Number one, treat them separately as two canals nonetheless, and two, if you want to check it for yourself, you can put two hand files in and see if they meet or see if they go start going different directions.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's pretty important.
1: Mm-hmm. So take a quick radiograph with two hand files in it on each side. And if you put one hand file to like length and the other file stops, like it, it, it is shorter than your your working length that you found you know that they join yeah. if you want to know if it goes to your working length then you know that they're separate if you're not 100 sure if it's two separate canals that are joining or one big one it doesn't really matter because you need to treat them separately anyway so you would instrument both sides of that figure eight as two canals yeah. that join and then fill it like two canals that join yeah and then you'll see the radiograph if there's any tooth structure in between
0: Let's talk quickly about, you know, the state of endodontics. I know you're a young specialist, so it's nice to get your kind of input on it. You're kind of new into the field and, and been working for the past little bit now. So uh, someone listening who's maybe like just finishing up a GPR or has been working for a couple of years and they're kind of considering getting into endo as a specialty. What's your mm-hmm. take on it and and how things are going to be going over the next like five to 10 years? Would you still recommend it to someone having been in it for a little while?
1: For sure, if. They really, really, really love it. No matter what they do, no matter what thing that they are thinking about with their lives, like if they are a residency, if they're currently practicing as a GP, if they want it enough, it's worth going into it. But it has—you have to actually love it, because you know, like people always worry: Oh, is endo going to die? Oh, is paragon? Is Ortha going to die because of you know small direct club and all that stuff? <laughs> oh no, the specialties are always going to be around but you're always going to be able to to do well for yourself if you clearly have a passion for it because no specialty no matter and no field no matter what the mo- kind of money you're making is worth it unless unless you love it you know there's always going to be tough days in every specialty there's yeah. always going to be t- situations there's always going to be tough situations with politics and capitalism and and, you know with how companies come and go and all that stuff they're always going to be difficult things and people are going to get get scared and they're going to go chicken little and like (laughs) oh my god the sky's falling yeah you know what always going to stuff that and it's always going to ebb and flow it's about if you love it people are going to come to you you're going to make patient you're going to make it better for patients no matter what the nice thing i think is that as young dentists and as the way healthcare is developing. I think there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of changes to the way healthcare is being done. It's not just your same old, same old, oh, you graduate down school, you hang a shingle put your name on it and you open it and that's it. Like yeah. if you want to, yes, you can, but that's not your only optioning. So the nice thing about with any kind of part of dent- dentistry, but including endos, there's different ways. You can do solo practitioner and you can do group practitioner. You can do multi-specialty. You can do, you can work for DSO. And big corporate kind of groups, yeah, there's a lot of work, and then obviously with like academia or public health or whatever. The nice thing about the other two, so either multi specialty or big corporate or whatever, is that it's a little different, yes, but it's a good fit for some people. And the biggest thing, and I always tell this to dental students who ask me or, or people young dentists who ask me about my take on these things it's about knowing yourself and knowing what you want from a practice, what are your values what are what's important to you yeah. what you what are your um like hard stop negotiation points for anything you know it's just like dating everybody's individual you have your yeah. like non-negotiables you have to have your non-negotiables as a dentist and honestly you, people are not always going to know what those are until they practice for a while that's right you know so some people are going to love solo Gig. Some people are going to hate just being by themselves and want to be in a group. Some people don't want to be like the junior associate and have to go up the ranks in a group practice. Some people don't want to run the practice ever. And they just want to be an associate in a group or in a corporate or whatever it is. Yeah. Some people just want to bang out cases in corporate <laughs> and, you know, whatever. Some people love working together with a whole bunch of different specialists in a multi-specialty because you're working together as a team some people want to have other people of the same specialty to bounce up, pop ideas off of and some people just want to be head honcho they're the only one they don't want to talk to anybody else you know some people only want to do academia it's so it's hard <laughs> it's to a say. lot of options for sure Yeah, tons of options. And it's about like knowing yourself and what you want from a practice, whether it's like a ton of patients, very few patients, you want to have a super, super flexible work schedule, or do you want to have just the same place every day? Like, cause you know, you like that consistency. Um, You want to have like a whole team together, or you like to be just by yourself making all the decisions, you know? So that's a tough kind of thing for a lot of people, but it's just about kind of figuring yourself out.
0: Are you looking for ways to save money in your practice, but not really sure where to start? Look no further. Henry Shine 360 has taken care of all of this for you. Your benefits begin at 4.5% cash rebate each month on everything you buy at Henry Shine. And you can access an average of 15% discounts off products you use every day. Now, here's the exciting part. Henry Shine 360 has also teamed up with businesses that you deal with on a daily basis to help save you thousands every year. Our program partners cover areas such as practice analytics, website design, credit card merchant fees, online marketing, and inventory management. Contact your local Henry Shine territory manager to find out more. Yeah. And what That's do you, awesome. amongst your colleagues and stuff, what are you seeing as a main trend? Are a lot of people gravitating towards like a visiting in-house specialist in a group kind of setting or are people still doing the traditional like endodontic center, come see me and I'll do your endo you on a referral basis.
1: I think that there's always that group model or group practices of the same specialty are always going to be really big because there's safety in numbers. Number one, you get to share all the responsibilities and the costs and the overhead and stuff yeah. like that. I think that's always going to be a big one, but I've seen definitely a rise in multi-specialty, both on the DSO like corporate level as well as the private sector. Yeah, and the reason yeah. is I think there's a lot of reasons. Again, safety in numbers, corporate. There's a lot of people who don't who either don't want to ever run it themselves or they like to have that safety net of a corporation like they know they're going to be have a ton of patients yeah and then also there's i think this is a factor partly with our generation is that we like to work together Mm -hmm. i think our generation really like does a lot of collaboration and kind of cognitive collaboration so on top of that you see a lot of how dentistry is all interconnected and that it's not just oh, here's a prescription for an an endodontist, like get a root canal. No, I mean, there's so many nuances of like treatment planning and restorative concerns and endodontic prognosis and periopartonitis and all that stuff that it's really easy when things are all together. So I think that there's always going to be those two things, but I definitely see the rise of multi-specialty or like larger groups
0: that's pretty cool and i think that's an it's a nice setting to work in like you said when you have other specialists or other even general dentists that you work with to bounce ideas off each other and plan cases together you can get a lot of better result for the patient which is pretty cool and i like that i like that our generation is a little bit more like collegial and interacting with each other i find it's, it's funny because when i go on facebook you know the demographics are a little bit older than like instagram and stuff. <laughs> yeah. so on facebook there's so much like someone will post a case and instead of like support, there's always like that one old guy who's like, oh, this is, I could have done this better or like this and that. So it's great that I think our young, our generation, our people, our millennials kind of coming up, especially through Instagram and other like media Mm -hmm. platforms are able to like collaborate and share cases and help each other out. And um, I think it's just really helping accelerate people's like learning curves. Like people are just getting so much better quicker um, with having that Mm -hmm. much support. So you mentioned the the multi kind of discipline. And I know I've been like past few episodes, I had like Davey Almanon and we talked a lot about biomimetic dentistry and restorative side of things, which is uh, something that I, I really enjoy doing. And I know the biomimetic guys and the endo guys maybe have different goals because their whole aim is to like avoid endo, right? So try and save the pop if, if need be. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't work out and the pop does flare up and sometimes people do need endo. So with the endo restorative aspect of things I know that's the area that you're really passionate about in electron and things so let's maybe from an endodontic perspective h- how do you facilitate the restorative side of things so if you may talk to me about mm-hmm. like that interaction that you have and maybe a couple of examples that'd be really cool
1: yeah, sure. So I w- try to work really, really closely with my restorative doctors. And I try to tailor things a little bit to what their preferences are and what they're like, you know, if somebody's like hardcore biomimetics versus somebody who uh, has a different treatment plan for a patient because there's different patients who are going to be like, a f- certain patients are going to be a fit for like pure, pure biomimetics. Some patients are not going to be a fit <laughs> for that. And you might just have to do amalgam or whatever, you know, yeah. like, they just some patients that are different, right? So it depends on the patient. I hate making these like blanket term statements that some people like extremists might use for yeah. either way, you know, like never endo or never whatever it is, because there's so many possibilities and different factors. We know that we're, as dentists, we know that our patients and their patient factors, there's so many little things that will affect our treatment planning. So by, by working together closely with the restorative doctors, I'm able to tailor a treatment plan a little bit better. So it's things like whether or not it's restorable versus not, right? There are some cases and there's some patients, no matter what, even if it looks really questionably restorable, but you just have to restore it because of X, Y, and Z. Yeah. It's the patient's only posterior tooth. They are not a candidate for implants for whatever reason. Yeah. They seriously do not want to extract their tooth or they, whatever it is, you know, then there are just some patients where even if it's probably close to restorable but is this patient like is this really a candidate for it or is patient expectations and patient management are all factors that comes into play as well so by working together closely there have been cases where i'm like i don't know about the restorability but the restorative doctor explains to me this is what my treatment plan is and why then you know what i'm like okay i'm on board i can see why right versus otherwise if I was just didn't care and I just didn't ask or or whatever it is I could easily be tell the patient the wrong thing yeah. oh my god No, it's not restorable get it extracted and the and the restorative doctor can be like no like you we can't because of X Y and Z
0: yeah it's a so I
1: recently had a case of two canines on this adorable little small elderly person it was really iffy on restorability. But then, and both restorative doctor and I, she and I both agreed, you know, the restorability is really iffy. It was going to be true heroics. Yeah. But this patient also doesn't really have much otherwise, right? Yeah. She only has like a couple teeth here and there trying to, and she was just not going to be a candidate for a full mouth arch implant case. The bone, yeah. the cost, all those things, she, she was just not going to be a candidate for this, you know? So that's why we even though the restorative was like a little bit iffy because of those other patient factors. I did the endo, she did the restorative. They did like, I think caspos cores and stuff like that. And it's on the, yeah, it's on the heroic end of things, but an elderly woman, you know, that kind of thing that we're just going to try to maintain this case. Another one I had recently where I didn't even do the endo really nice elderly man, large like slightly large carries on one tooth and another tooth had crown recurrent carries close again to the pulp quote unquote yeah and that's what he was referred but he's also like 90 years old the pulp is calcified to know there's like no pulp at all in that chamber (laughs) yeah and if we really started nitpicking every single margin you're you're looking at at replacing every single crown in his mouth he's had these crowns for like 20 years the rest like Um, the restoration had like a deep caries, but there's no pulp really in the chamber anymore. So it's not that close to the pulp and he can't really feel cold on a lot of teeth and there's no lesions and he's completely asymptomatic, you know? No, I'm, so I talked to the restorative doctor and she and I were both like, you know, yeah, well, let's not, we're not going to do endo on this case. He's happy because he's not getting endo, but also these teeth are, they're all questionable. Like all the margins are questionable. We're not going to yeah. p- subject this poor 90-year-old man through uh, to replace so him with crown yeah. in his mouth, you know? So there's different patient factors. I'm sure a lot of your viewers are going to disagree with me on a case or whatever, but its it depends on patient factors. It depends on restorative factors, all those things. Back to the biomimetics and that type of thing, because the whole point of biomimetic dentistry, not not about pulp or not, but more importantly, it's about restoring the tooth and how, right? You need to have the proper yeah. bonding protocols to give the tooth the best possible option. So on part of that is conserving as much tooth structure as possible and adequate access, right? So for conserving as much tooth structure as possible, the nice thing about endodontics is that so much has advanced that has, has allowed us to maintain as much tooth structure as possible yeah. we're able to do smaller accesses because there's better understanding of the anatomy there are better radiographs there's cbcts and there's better illumination and magnification so we can do smaller accesses to do the same thing we can still clean out the caries we can still clean out the pulp and get out the tissue with still getting smaller accesses we're able to do smaller instrumentation and still be able to irrigate an instrument well we now have like better in we have Um, more technology for the instruments so controlled memory different types of heat treatments different types of instruments instruments with smaller Mm -hmm. maximum flute diameter so just really really thin instruments and really flexible ones so we're able to maintain the curves and maintain the tooth structure and then additionally we can have better irrigation and cleaning you know there's activated irrigation there's good research on different types of irrigation and different irrigation protocols that we can get the tooth really clean with smaller shapes and still do everything. So we're able to to conserve tooth structure on the endo side of things. Then on the access side of things, we can still maintain a smaller access, but still have it adequate access for the restorative doctor to do all their proper bonding protocols. Because I think that's really important. It does me no good to do a tiny, tiny, tiny root canal through an access that no restorative doctor can get etched and bond properly in or out. You know, like, okay, that then now I've made more of a headache for you and me. I mean, that's just, that's not good, right? Yeah. So being able to have a proper access where the restorative doctor can get back in, know what I, know what's there and be able to get to do all their proper bonding protocols is really important. So I'll do like, I can still do a really small access, but do it in a way where the restorative doctor could still see everything themselves, you know, with loops and the light. They don't need- Without a microscope. Yeah. yeah, even if they don't have a microscope, they can still see everything. They can get their microbrush down to all of it. There's a lot of tooth structure left there. So if they need to adjust anything or they can choose to do whatever they want with the tooth, right? If they feel the tooth is a candidate for like a biomedic crown or like they want to do a seric or if they want to do PM, whatever they need, they feel is appropriate for that patient, they can because now they have all the tooth structure that they need to do it. So I think yeah. those are working together closely and knowing the restorative capabilities of that tooth for that doctor, and then being able to do the proper bonding protocols are all really important.
0: I'm curious, what is the percentage of, you know, the cases that get referred to you that they ask you to build up a core? Or is it normally that they just say, temporize it and send it back to me?
1: Um, it depends on the case. So one of my offices, which is a multi-specialty practice, we've grown the practice enough that actually they, there's a lot of patients that need you know some sort of direct cuspal coverage crown lay in whatever you want to call it um restoration on top of it but the patient might be waiting for a while because of scheduling or whatever it is right so i actually do the core buildup. i already talked about it with the restorative doctor ahead of time they're full cool with it so they don't want the patient to wait the most important thing is we all want what's best for the patient they don't yeah. want the patient to wait a long time i don't want things to be temporized for a long time. So I'll do the restoration too. And I try to learn from everybody like on Instagram from biomimetic sense, from trying to perform it at the higher levels of bonding protocols so that I can properly have a good restoration for the patient. We'll talk about cases ahead of time too. If I see that there's, you know, it's going to be a really difficult case for me to restore, you know, because my restorative capabilities are going to be different than, uh, than somebody who does it all day, every day. Uh, or if I don't know for sure, what kind of crown or whatever they're planning or, you know do they want to keep the crown that's there there's different patient factors there for that as well you know so those some cases I won't but if if there's any questions we talk to each other a lot so there's partial fractures no post please yeah. you know that kind of
0: thing yeah and uh, what's your thoughts on like the whole like deep margin elevation because I know like from an endodontist perspective do you think it's an effective principle that can give good long-term results or is there like much literature on it from the endo side of things That can cause leakage and cause issues down the line.
1: I think that no matter what it's about doing a good restoration, whether it's deep margin elevation or crowns or you know, even if it's just a class one access prep restoration, yeah. No matter what it is, there has to be good restorations, good pawning protocols. If it's done well, then You know, it doesn't matter what is in there on there, or if it's a margin, one margin or another, you know? So no, there's not a lot of great endodontic literature. And some of the endodontic literature on it is about amalgam or very outdated ways of restoring teeth. So that's a thing. A lot of restorative doctors will ask me similar questions about not just deep margin elevation, but restoring an access through a crown versus doing a new crown. I've got yeah. about like composite versus amalgam. Here's the thing: my problem with the endodontic literature is that the endodontic literature is going to be based on what they learned, which is outdated <laughs> restorative techniques. You know, which is yeah. not their fault. They're just when they do the inherently the literature is flawed because they're doing the literature and they're doing the protocols based on what they know not based on what is the most current because yeah. not it's impossible for every endodontist to keep up to date on every restorative technique like i try to keep oh, fairly yeah. up to date but that's i mean that, that's even hard for me you know <laughs> i try to keep somewhat up to date not so that i can do every restorative case myself but so that i can communicate better with my restorative doctors yeah. um, But if they, the people who are doing the research are going to be doing slightly older techniques of bonding, of stuff like that. So by definition, their findings are going to be flawed, a little bit flawed. Or some of the literature itself is outdated using older techniques. So those are not really valid. You can't compare them, you know, or an access of that style back then that was much larger is you can't really compare versus an access now or the restorative now? It's going to be a PFM versus a crown lay or on yeah, How do you compare that?
0: It's hard, to, uh, it's hard to stay on top of things because I think even, you know, when I graduated from dental school, like two, three years ago, I f- you feel like it's already changing. You know, you got to like stay on top of the literature and like keep going to courses. I think one, there's like a couple of pros and cons. I think Instagram is good for kind of keeping up with what people are doing around the world, like latest trends. The one downside that I think, and one of my friends actually brought this up, I hadn't really thought about it is, because you see people doing stuff on Instagram, different types of cases and things, it might be that like, it might not always be like backed like evidence-based stuff that they're doing. So if you kind of just blindly copy what other people are doing or trying like, you know, to mimic what they're doing, it may not necessarily be like the right thing to do. So I think it's something to be really cognizant mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. as well and make sure you're not just like blindly just doing things because other people are doing it and make sure it's actually backed by something.
1: Exactly. Uh, I
0: think it's a bit of a challenge for sure.
1: Yeah. And that's unfortunately the problem with a lot of medical instruments or medical like devices and medical materials is that they release something, but the research on it is not super like, um, it's not long-term yet. So yeah, yeah, with all the restorative stuff, I think looking at the restorative literature is going to be higher, is more up to date than the end, than pure endodontic literature. So that's why for restorative stuff, that's one thing. Whereas for the endodontic, like pure endodontic uh, treatment, then looking at endodontic literature is different. So it's like, it's even just as an example, it's like pulp caps. You know, the pulp yeah. ca- sort of literature pulp caps are not the greatest because they're not using the most current materials often. You know, they're looking at older techniques and older materials and things like that, which I get. That's what they were taught. Yeah. And then whereas the endodontic literature for pulp capping is going to be different. So even like biomimetics of vitrebond versus other restoration materials, it's all that kind of thing. You know, I think it's just a different comparison. yeah. You know?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I thought because yeah, if you look at similar subjects from different perspectives of different specialties, each discipline is going to have their own perspective on it. So they don't always necessarily match up. Uh, so it'd be cool to, it'd be nice to like see like a joint paper of like uh, endo restorative and with like endodontist and a restorative dentist like collaborating on it. I think that'd be a pretty cool, pretty useful one to have. Because I think, you know, like you said too, with like the like, ninja accesses and stuff it's yeah it's cool because it saves tooth but if the restorative dentist can actually like fit a micro brush down or the depth of cure is not going to be good enough for the composite in there it's going to always like have those issues with it as well right and i know even don't in the- say that
1: to the extremist endodontist they're going to hear this podcast <laughs> and be like super angry with me <laughs> like it's different it's just but, uh, how you manage the accesses That's yeah how you manage- but I,
0: i've i know a lot of endodontists are not even like super keen with the ninja access so <laughs>
1: Yes, that's, yeah. that is an inflammatory subject, but we will not talk about it in this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah we'll let people use their imagination on that one again. Seriously, or,
1: you know, go ask the end the like, yeah. it, it depends on the situation, yeah. But
0: it looks so good radiographically. I think that's why. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. It looks cool. It looks cool from a yeah. restorative standpoint. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Awesome. So I think when we did the podcast last time, I wasn't doing the uh, rapid fire yet. So we will do that with you today to oh, wrap sure. things okay. up so oh, uh
1: what? <laughs> so what's
0: your what's your favorite pizza Sweet. topping pepperoni if you weren't doing dentistry what profession would you be in pastry chef nice uh what's your favorite tooth to work on lower six and uh what's your favorite like musician or artist or band
1: bts K-pop. <laughs> K-pop. or young or young the giant for american music so yeah those are my two bts or young the giant
0: what do you What do you listen to at work?
1: Usually older rock, so Beatles, Aerosmith, like that type of stuff. Just because that's like that's a general crowd pleaser.
0: And uh, what's your favorite Instagram account to follow?
1: Kirti. Yeah. Yeah. Kirti and so She's one of. My-
0: she does really good work. Yeah, she's super nice as well. Super uh, positive in the community exactly. as well, which is pretty sweet. She
1: has because it's not just about dentistry. Like obviously, yes, her dentistry is amazing. Her ceramic crowns are just incredible but she has like really good kind of thought provoking stuff you know so i really
0: like yeah. her hers a lot yeah she's super nice awesome thanks for coming on we'll uh, get this part 2 out and hopefully down the line we'll do a part 3 as well and see if there's any new changes going on in dentistry and we can kind of chat about uh, i think it was really cool to talk about the endo restorative side of things cuz uh, you don't always think about that from like the endodontist perspective and also from like our perspective mm-hmm. so it was kind of refreshing to hear that so that was great and for me, it's always fun to do these things because I get to just ask different specialists like my little things that I get stuck in. Sure. So selfishly, it's pretty useful for me as well. So thanks for uh, kind of answering those quick questions as well. I think a lot of people will get some value. Oh, definitely.
1: It. I appreciate you uh, having me on and I always love chatting with you and I love chatting about endo. So this is always good.
0: Awesome. We'll chat again soon. Yes. Take care.
1: You too.